If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. You'd be hard-pressed to find a more remote place on Earth than Bouvet Island. It's the closest piece of land to Antarctica, in the furthest reaches of the Southern Ocean. This tiny speck of volcanic rock is mostly covered in ice and devoid of life, trees, or any real shelter. It was first discovered on January 1, 1739 by a French polar explorer named Jean-Baptiste Bouvet de Logère. After that, the island was lost for another 69 years before other explorers rediscovered it hundreds of miles away from where it had been placed on the maps. For more than a century, explorers kept missing the tiny island because of its remoteness and the treacherous, icy waters all around. It wouldn't be until 1927 when a group of Norwegian explorers became the first in history to actually land on Bouvet Island and make camp there. The Norwegians returned in 1929 only to discover that both their supply huts had been destroyed by hostile weather. After that, Bouvet Island was once again left alone until 1955, when the South African government began looking into establishing a weather station there. The South African frigate Transvaal was dispatched to the island, but they ended up circling around the place several times before determining there wasn't any large flat platform suitable for building a weather station. Then on January 1st, 1958, an American icebreaker, the West Wind, discovered that volcanic eruptions had formed a long, low-lying lava plateau, measuring approximately 400 yards long by half as wide. From there, as far as anyone knew, no one returned to Bouvet Island for another six years. That was when the Royal Navy's Antarctic ice vessel, the HMS Protector, returned to the island and sent a survey team ashore. The man leading the team was Lieutenant Commander Alan Crawford, and he made a startling discovery. There, lying in a small lagoon and surrounded by a colony of fur seals, lay a tiny abandoned rowboat, partially full of water, but still in good enough condition that it could have been considered seaworthy. Crawford described the boat as a whaler or ship's lifeboat, so small it must have come from some larger vessel. But no one had any clue what that vessel could have been. Or more curiously, what could have happened to the lifeboat's crew? Crawford's men conducted a brief search of the area looking for signs of life or even human remains, but found none. Then in 1966, a biological survey team returned to Bouvet Island and examined the same lagoon. But this group never mentioned seeing the lifeboat, so it seems likely the boat was gone by that point. Whether the boat sank or someone sailed it away was another mystery in itself. For decades, no one knew to whom the tiny lifeboat belonged or what happened to its crew. That is, until just the past few years, when an astute Reddit user came up with a plausible explanation. The user discovered an obscure reference in a report about a Russian whale catcher and research vessel, the Slava 9, who appeared to have visited Bouvet Island on November 27, 1958. It turns out the Slava 9 had two lifeboats, one motorized and one for rowing. 
The Reddit user did a little more detective work and found another reference to the research mission in a report that appeared in the 1960 Transactions of the Oceanographical Institute. The article describes a small party of scientists and sailors landing on Bouvet Island before they were forced to abandon the rowboat due to harsh weather and had to be rescued by helicopter. While it's not a concrete solution to the curious mystery, it's as close to an answer as we're ever likely to get. There's something about an island that seems custom-made for keeping secrets. Unusual things have been discovered on islands all over the world, some of which are never fully explained. But some secrets have a way of coming out, even after many years, much like the lifeboat on Bouvet Island. Back in 1917, an American gunboat, the Yorktown, was patrolling the waters along the western coast of North and South America looking for German U-boats in response to reports the Germans had set up a secret base in the area. That was when they came across a rocky atoll known as Clipperton Island. It's a barren and desolate place that isn't suitable for much life other than the orange crabs that cover its shores. Yet for some reason, generations of people from several different countries kept squabbling over Clipperton Island to see who could claim ownership. The Yorktown's captain sent out a rowboat with some sailors to the island to have a look around, but the rough waters and jagged rocks kept the sailors away at first. It was only on their second attempt were they finally able to make land and have a look around. What they discovered was something completely unexpected. Something so terrible that the Yorktown's captain immediately swore his men to secrecy. True to their word, no one spoke about the horrific things they found on Clipperton Island for another 17 years. I'm Nate Hale, lost and adrift in a world that doesn't understand me. And this is The Conspirators. The first thing you have to understand about Clipperton Island is just how inhospitable it really is. It's tiny, for one thing, just two miles across in its widest direction. The island is actually a ring-shaped atoll that rises up out of the ocean about 670 miles off the southwest corner of Mexico. And before you even get there, you have to navigate through treacherous, shark-infested waters. Then you're faced with the actual challenge of reaching shore. Much of the outer rim is covered in sharp, pointy coral, as well as the aforementioned orange crabs that will strip an injured man's flesh down to the bone, given the chance. The wet season lasts from May to October, bringing nothing but massive waves and torrential rain. And for the remainder of the year, the entire island reeks of ammonia. There is hardly any natural vegetation either, save for a few scraggly coconut palms that somehow defy nature. Knowing all this, it should then come as no surprise that Clipperton Island has remained largely uninhabited throughout much of its history. I say largely uninhabited, though, because that hasn't always been the case. People keep trying to live there because they see value in the tiny ring-shaped rock. As far as the history books go, the island was first discovered by a Spanish conquistador named Alvaro Cedron in November 1528, after being commissioned by Hernan Cortez to find a new route to the Philippines. The island was then rediscovered on Good Friday, April 3, 1711, by a couple of French explorers, Martin de Chesseron and Michel de Bocage, who claimed the island in the name of France and christened it the Ile de la Passion, or Passion Island. 
But their initial attempts to land their rowboats on the jagged shores proved so difficult, they didn't actually make land. Instead, they simply rode around the island shouting out a proclamation claiming the island in the name of France. The French weren't the only ones who laid claim to the island, nor would they be the last. The current name comes from an English pirate and privateer named John Clipperton, who was said to have used the island as a base for his raids on shipping vessels throughout the area. As a privateer, Clipperton worked in an official capacity for the British Crown to stymie Spanish efforts to expand their shipping operations in the area. It's believed Clipperton and his men set up shop for a time in the caves scattered around the island's highest cliffs. France, the United States, Britain, and Mexico have all laid claim to the island throughout its history. You might wonder why so many different people would show so much interest in the tiny desolate rock. In short, the answer is guano. The island is literally coated with it. That's also why the place stinks of ammonia. For a long time, the massive load of bird, bat, and seal droppings were highly prized as both a natural fertilizer and a key component of gunpowder because of its high levels of nitrogen and phosphorus. Between 1858 and 1917, each of those four countries tried to establish a permanent residence on the island in order to mine all that valuable guano. In 1856, the United States passed a law called the Guano Islands Act that in effect made it legal for the United States to set up mining operations on any guano-rich island anywhere as long as it remained uninhabited and unclaimed by any other country. In 1892, the U.S. tried annexing Clipperton Island and setting up a small mining operation there. But the venture proved so costly, and the island was such a difficult place to live, that the operation struggled for years. There are differing accounts of what happened to the Americans. One story claims Napoleon sent a squad of French troops to the island and forced out the U.S., whereas another version says that in 1897, the Mexicans decided they were going to claim the island for themselves, even if they had to resort to trickery to get it. Considering the island's proximity to Mexico, they felt they had a stronger claim to it than anyone, so they sailed a small group of Mexicans to the island and managed to lure two of the three remaining Americans away. Then, as soon as they were gone, they planted a Mexican flag on the shore and claimed it for themselves. Things became even further complicated when in 1899 a British company decided they were going to set up a guano mining operation of their own, and they didn't give a damn which country claimed to own the island. In any case, Mexico didn't put up much resistance and instead let the British have their way. The British built the first major settlement on Clipperton Island, constructing homes and planting gardens on the rocky shores. But within a few years, the guano market quickly became a little too, um, saturated, shall we say. Fertilizer prices plunged, and by 1910, the British company decided the operation just wasn't worth the expense. They removed all their employees, save for one island caretaker, and left the other major stakeholders to determine Clipperton Island's future. After that, France and Mexico signed an arbitration treaty to determine who was the rightful owner of Clipperton Island. Officially, King Victor Emmanuel III of Italy was given the final say in the matter. But meanwhile, the Mexicans weren't wasting any time. In 1910, Mexican President Porfirio Diaz sent over a group of 13 soldiers to guard the island, including a de facto governor named Ramon Arnaud. When they got to Clipperton, there was already a group of houses and a newly built lighthouse courtesy of the British waiting for them to occupy. Those 13 soldiers brought with them their wives, children, and servants despite the number of warnings they were given to them about how difficult life would prove to be on the island. 
Within a year, close to 100 people were living and working on Clipperton Island. But it wouldn't remain that way for long. Pretty soon, disease and other factors would devastate the island's population. In 1914, an American vessel wrecked on the island. The Americans advised Arnaud to pack up his men and their families and leave, but Arnaud refused, and instead sent the Americans away as quickly as possible, along with the last remaining British resident. With no other presence on the island other than Mexico, Arnaud thought his people had it made. Arnaud was a 33-year-old military officer who'd run into some trouble with his superiors on more than one occasion. It all started when he deserted his post shortly after enlisting. That incident landed him in a military stockade for five months. After that, he was sent to one undesirable post after another, of which Clipperton Island was just the latest. But Arnaud had made up his mind to turn his military career around, and he was bound and determined to make the Clipperton Island operation a success at any cost. He and his wife Alicia actually started a family on the island. Within the first year, they welcomed their first child, Ramon Jr., followed by two more over the next three years. Other soldiers, too, welcomed new lives into the world. And although life on the island could feel monotonous at times, there remained hope for the future. But soon, that ended, too. Arnaud remained largely unaware of a developing revolution back in his home country that would cause the government to divert its attention away from the tiny island. At the same time that was happening, so too did World War I break out following the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria. The tiny community on Clipperton Island was almost entirely dependent on ships from the mainland for food and information. The few warnings Arnaud received from the last few supply ships that he might want to consider rounding up his people and heading home fell on deaf ears. Pretty soon the supply ships stopped coming altogether, which left Arnaud and his people in a lot of trouble. This meant that Arnaud and his people had to rely on what they could scrounge for themselves to eat and drink from the island itself. There was a shallow freshwater pool in the center of the island where they got their drinking water. But after a series of storms wiped out their vegetable garden, that meant the only food supply they had came from the island's native crabs, fish, bird eggs, and coconuts. The problem was there was no good source for vitamin C among the available food sources. Which meant by 1915 many of the men began to die off from something that had wiped out nearly 2 million sailors between the 15th to the 18th centuries. Scurvy. Today we tend to think of scurvy as a bit of a joke in old pirate stories. But scurvy was a serious concern a few centuries ago. People suffering from scurvy encounter a terrible set of symptoms. Early on, the skin begins to blister. Soon, tiny blood blisters erupt into full-blown ulcers. Eventually, the gums begin to turn black and putrefy. The bones become brittle. And old breaks that had long since healed would spontaneously crack once again. As the skeleton breaks down, so too does the circulatory system. Blood vessels begin to burst, leaking blood into the muscles that then coagulates throughout the body. Eventually, as your body begins to literally rattle as your brittle bones begin to shake, you're also at constant risk of seizures or even an aneurysm at any moment. In the end, though, most deaths from scurvy occur as you simply bleed to death inside your own skin. So yes, scurvy was no joke, and Arnaud's men began to drop dead of the terrible disease one by one. Within a year, most of the men were dead, and many of the women and children as well. The remaining survivors buried the bodies deep within the sand to keep them away from the orange crabs that would have made short work of them. 
For a while, despite his people suffering and dying, Arnaud remained stubbornly reluctant to abandon the island. It was only once his wife became pregnant with their fourth child did he really begin to seriously consider seeking help. By then, he was down to only five men, including himself, most of whom were all weak from malnourishment and vitamin deficiency. Then one day in 1916, they could see a massive storm brewing on the horizon. At the same time, Arnaud swore he could see a ship in the distance. He decided to take a chance and use the last remaining boat they had and took his last three soldiers with him out on the ocean. There's some debate that remains whether Arnaud really saw a ship at all or if he was suffering from delusions at that point. We don't know exactly what happened next, but some of the women who watched terrified from the shore could see some sort of commotion happening on board the tiny rowboat. It appeared to some of them as if a fight broke out as Arnaud's men tried to seize his weapon. This turned into an outright brawl which resulted in the tiny boat capsizing, sending all the men plunging into the choppy water where they all drowned. But the wives back on shore had no time to grieve. The hurricane they saw sweeping over the horizon was closing in fast. They were forced to grab the children and rush back inside the Arnaud's home, where they huddled in the basement throughout the night. Then, to make matters even worse, Arnaud's heavily pregnant widow, Alicia, went into labor that very same evening. She gave birth to a son she named Angel. But by the next morning, after the storm cleared, the remaining women and children emerged into a nightmare scenario even worse than they could possibly imagine. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story. Before we continue, I want to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Buttercloth, the world's most comfortable shirt. I'm not just saying that either. Do you hate wearing dress shirts? Well, Buttercloth has come up with a revolutionary new kind of shirt that's as comfy as your favorite t-shirt. The company was started by a young fashion designer named Dan Tran. Dan is a Vietnamese immigrant who grew up learning to sew sitting on his mother's lap. He and his family emigrated to the U.S. when he was 20, and from there he worked hard to put himself through one of the best fashion design schools in the country. Dan has worked for some of the biggest fashion brands in the world, and he used to wear t-shirts into the office, but would have to change into stiff, scratchy dress shirts when it came time for meetings. He began to wonder why he couldn't create a new kind of dress shirt that was every bit as comfy as his favorite tees. So Dan went and developed a revolutionary long-fiber cotton that he called Buttercloth. This fabric was so revolutionary that it caught the attention of the TV show Shark Tank, where investor Robert Herjavec loved it so much he invested $250,000 in the company. After trying out several Buttercloth shirts recently, I have to say that was money well spent. These shirts are incredibly comfortable. The special blend of 100% long-fiber cotton goes through a unique manufacturing process to make the shirts light, stretchable, 
and as comfy as your favorite tee. They're not stiff and scratchy like your typical men's dress shirt. And their six-way stretch and exclusive double finish construction means they'll hold up to all sorts of wear and tear, too. My personal favorite has to be the one I own from the Icy Cotton Collection, which is actually woven with a special process that infuses cotton with organic mint fibers. During this long, hot summer, the mint fibers have a natural cooling effect that works incredibly with the breathability of the long fiber cotton. I was wearing my Icy Cotton shirt on a warm summer day, and it was so cool and comfortable, it was hard to believe it was a dress shirt. Whether you need bigger, tall, long sleeve, short sleeve, Buttercloth has you covered with whatever style shirt you need. I love my Buttercloth dress shirts, and I'm sure you will too. Right now, Buttercloth is offering the Conspirators listeners 20% off your first purchase. Go to Buttercloth.com slash TC to receive 20% off your first full price order. That's Buttercloth.com slash TC. And now, back to the show. As the women emerged from the basement the following morning, they were faced with a scene of utter devastation. The hurricane had leveled most of the homes along with what remained of the gardens and even some of the island's native palm trees. But that wasn't the worst problem they faced. No, the real problem was the island's lighthouse keeper, Victoriano Alvarez. He was the last surviving male resident of the island, and the first thing he did was to declare himself the king of Clipperton Island. There's a lot we don't know about Alvarez, but many historians describe him as a tall, powerfully built man with a history of mental instability. It's difficult to understand why he, of all people, was chosen to act as the island's lighthouse keeper, but the work suited him in a way. It allowed him to remain isolated from others. For much of the time, Arnaud and his people lived on Clipperton Island. Hardly anyone ever saw Alvarez. I have no idea what the man was eating or doing all that time or if his time in isolation only made his mental issues worse. One thing that is clear, though, is that once there was no one to oppose him, the man became a complete monster. As soon as Alvarez entered what remained of the settlement the morning after the hurricane, he immediately began going around and gathering up all the weapons. Some versions of events say he tossed most of them into the lagoon, whereas others say he kept them for himself back at the lighthouse. In either case, he still made it abundantly clear to the women and children who remained on the island that he was in charge. There were only four young women remaining at that point, including a 13-year-old girl named Rosalia Nava and a handful of younger children. And they were all powerless to stop Alvarez. After that, Alvarez had free reign to terrorize, abuse, beat, and rape the women as he pleased. He would often drag one of them back to the lighthouse with him for days at a time until he grew tired of her and moved on to the next one. For nearly three years, he cycled through the four young women over and over and over again. 20-year-old Tirza Randon was the one who put up the most resistance. The young woman was the most outspoken of the group. She'd often berate Alvarez and voice her hatred of him right to his face. She was unafraid to tell him that if they were ever rescued, she would be sure to tell them everything he did. When she was back among the others, she was the one who spoke most loudly of dissent. This was especially brave of her, considering Alvarez had already shot and killed a mother and child early on after the mother refused his advances. With no rescue ships coming, the women soon realized they would have to rely on themselves if they were going to survive this ordeal. For you see, Alvarez made one critical mistake in that he believed these were just a group of defenseless women. What he didn't realize, these were really a small group of people with nothing left to lose and every incentive to survive. 
In July 1917, Alvarez showed up at the camp with the rifle slung over his shoulder and demanded that Alicia Arnaud meet him at the lighthouse the following morning. It's hard to say why this was determined to be the breaking point, but after he left, Tirza Randon looked at Arnaud and told her, Now is the time. The following morning, Arnaud trudged toward the lighthouse with seven-year-old Ramon Jr. following close behind, as well as Tirza Randon. They found Alvarez sitting outside the lighthouse next to a campfire cooking a bird he'd caught. He seemed to be in uncharacteristically good spirits. That is, until the moment he looked up and realized Alicia Arnaud wasn't alone. Alvarez grew angry and demanded to know why Tirza was here. An argument broke out, and while Alvarez was busy shouting at Alicia how she could be so stupid, Tirza managed to slip away unnoticed. She went inside the lighthouse and looked around, and when she found what she was looking for, she stepped back outside and made her move. It was some time later when seven-year-old Ramon Arnold spotted the tiny rowboat circling the island. He couldn't believe what he was seeing at first. It was a whaler belonging to the American gunship, the Yorktown, which was anchored further out to sea. Ramon told his mother what he saw, and she immediately began running for the beach. She scrambled on a steep embankment overlooking the beach, crying out in frantic Spanish. Her cries caught the attention of the others, and soon she was joined by the other women and children. They all capered and danced on the hot sand now that help was finally here. But after a while, their celebrations died down when they realized the whaler was having trouble finding a safe place to come ashore, and instead sailed away. The women then wondered what they would do if the boat never came back. They began to openly discuss the possibility that they were used the remaining bullets in the rifle to kill each other, or just drown themselves and the children in the lagoon if the boat never returned. But soon it did come back, and this time it successfully made land. The group of sailors were led by an officer named Lieutenant Kerr. He was horrified by the women's blood-curdling story. He couldn't believe the terrible shape these women and children were in. All the children were small for their age and suffering from malnutrition. Two-year-old Angel Arnaud was suffering from a skeletal condition called rickets and was unable to walk. An 11-year-old boy named Francisco had to carry him to the rescue vessel. Yorktown's Captain H.P. Peril later listened to the women's story, at first with great interest, and then with utter horror. What these women had endured was far worse than anything he'd ever heard in his life. He was astonished to learn that Alicia Arnaud was only 29 years old, not a woman in her late 40s as he'd assumed at first. What this woman had endured on Clipperton Island had aged her beyond her years. Peril briefly suspended the Yorktown's mission of hunting for Germans in the Pacific and set a course for Salina Cruz, Mexico. They sent a wireless message ahead, asking for help locating any living relatives of the survivors. On July 22, 1917, the Yorktown reached the mainland. Soon after, another boat arrived carrying Alicia Arnaud's father, Felix Rivera. Up till that point, he'd been led to believe by the Mexican government that his daughter and all the other Clipperton Island colonists were dead. When Rivera's daughter and four grandchildren he'd never met rushed into his arms, sailors all over the decks openly wept. A fund was set up to help the women and children start new lives in the area. In 1931, Victor Emmanuel III of Italy finally made his determination that Clipperton Island rightly belonged to France. Over the decades that followed, there have been occasional visitors to the island. Some military operations were conducted there, 
along with some scientific expeditions, including one by Jacques Cousteau in 1980. There have even been a few other castaways, but no one has ever tried to make a permanent settlement on Clipperton Island ever since the terrible events of 1917. As for the women themselves, their story was often spoken about in whispers all throughout western Mexico. Many rumors persisted about what really happened to them. It was known the women had been trapped on a tiny island, and that all their men had died save for one who some say went crazy and terrorized them. But what happened to that man? For that part of the story, there remained only speculation. Captain Perrow listened to the story told to him by Alicia Arnaud and the others what they said happened to Victoriano Alvarez with some skepticism. The captain later returned to Clipperton Island and went ashore with Lieutenant Kerr to see for himself what really happened to the man. The first thing that struck them when they found the man's rotting corpse was just how gigantic he was. Somehow the crabs hadn't yet picked his massive corpse apart. It became readily apparent just how much control the man had been able to exert over the other women just based on his size alone. What also became immediately clear was that the story the women had told the captain about how Victoriano Alvarez died wasn't what really happened either. It didn't take a crime scene investigator to see how badly mutilated Alvarez's body was and to know that he'd been murdered. That morning, when Alicia arrived at the lighthouse with Tirza for her final confrontation with Alvarez, played out like this. While Alvarez angrily shouted at Arnaud, Tirza snuck inside the lighthouse looking for a weapon. She found a hammer and came back outside. Before Alvarez knew what was happening, Tirza snuck up behind him and smashed his skull as hard as she could. After that, both women were on him. Tirza kept swinging away with a hammer while Alicia Arnaud picked up a hatchet Alvarez had been using to chop firewood. She went to work hacking away at his face and limbs while Tirza smashed his bones to pieces. The man was almost certainly dead long before they were finished. Captain Peril and Lieutenant Kerr looked at the bloody crime scene and knew the legal trouble the women would be in if the truth ever came out. So they made a vow right then and there never to reveal the truth to anyone. Their final report on the incident contains no mention of how Victoriano Alvarez really died. When asked, they repeated the same story Alicia Arnaud had told them, that the man died of scurvy. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening. I'm really excited to announce that I just launched a brand new Conspirators merchandise store on tpublic.com. Here you can get a bunch of great designs and all sorts of items, including t-shirts, mugs, phone cases, and a whole lot more. If you're interested, I'll put a link in the show notes. I also want to give a special shout out to my latest Patreon supporter, Syndra. Thanks, Syndra. And thanks to each and every one of you for helping support the show. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our exclusive bonus mini-episodes. If you're not on Patreon, but still want to help us out, I encourage you to subscribe, rate, and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews really helps us out by spreading the good word about the show. If you're not on Apple, not to worry, you can also find us on most of your other favorite podcast apps. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can hear our entire back catalog of shows. You can find us on most of the major social media platforms, too, including Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Lastly, before we go, I wanted to share a promo from my friend Laura Norton, who does the excellent podcast, The Fall Line. Laura has a new show coming out that I think Conspirators listeners will really dig called One Strange Thing. Here's Laura to tell you more. 
We all enjoy a little mystery. And on the new podcast, One Strange Thing, that's just what you'll get. Every other week, One Strange Thing presents forgotten stories from America's news archives. They all have something in common, a single element that can't quite be explained. I'm Laura Norton. Join me on One Strange Thing, and you'll hear about bizarre events that unfolded in our country's local newspapers, but never made it much further than that. No matter the place or the people, One Strange Thing brings you stories that are very real and just a little otherworldly. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.